Welcome back to Wellness and Wisdom. Today we are going to go feet first, no pun intended, into the subject of what you stand on all day, your feet. Do you really think about what carries you around all day? Yep, the aforementioned feet. You probably don't pay them much attention until they hurt. And then surprise, people often refer to something as a pain in the tush or the derriere, but really there is no pain like the one in the foot to affect your quality of life. You take your feet for granted when they are pain-free, but they are actually crucial to your lifestyle and debilitating when they act up. So I was always told I had pretty feet and I wasn't really concerned about them. I loved wearing pretty sandals and showing off lots of skin. And then one day I looked down and I thought, what on earth is that? Wow, it seemed like I developed a bunion overnight. Shortly thereafter, I developed inflammation of the little sesamoid bone under my big toe. The next thing you know, I developed another one on the other foot, and the rest is history. The commonest foot non-traumatic related conditions that I see in primary care, besides bunions, are toenail fungus, plantar fasciitis, diabetic foot issues. Trauma-wise, of course, sprained ankles are the commonest. So today, I'm going to discuss all of these with Dr. Priya Parthasarathy, as well as look at what you should think about when you buy shoes. She's going to tell us about some of the newer and exciting treatments available in podiatry, all kinds of stuff related to the bottom line, your feet. So Priya, as she is fondly known, is a partner at the Foot and Ankle Specialists of Mid-Atlantic, and she practices in Maryland. She's currently the spokesperson of the American Podiatric Medical Association, and she serves on the editorial board of the Podiatry Today publication. She's also president-elect of the Maryland Podiatric Medical Association Executive Committee, and she's board certified in podiatric medicine. Well, welcome, Priya, if we can call you that. Of course. Dr. Thank Pohasaki. you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about feet today. We have lots to congratulate you on today, um, Priya. First of all, your six-month-old baby boy, number three. Welcome back to work. Thank you. And congratulations on being a cover girl. You made the cover of this month's Podiatry Today magazine. I sure did. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Six months postpartum and I'm a cover girl. <laughs> uh, there you go. And also on being the president-elect from Maryland. Thanks. Yes, Kud I'm very excited. Kudos to you. Um, to move into that role next year. Cool. So let's get down to business. How about we start with bunions? What causes them? Why don't they stop getting worse even when you start to treat your feet with respect? That's a great question. And as you said, in primary care, you see a lot of bunions. We obviously see them a lot in the office. So the big question is, how did they get there? It varies because I see children with bunions. They could be as young as 7, 10, 12. And at that point, they're not wearing pointy shoes or anything like that. So one type of bunion has a hereditary predisposition. So if grandmother had it or mom and dad had it, and I see a lot of that in children, then we move on and I see it in men and women later on during the years. So not, you know, doesn't have to be 80, but 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds. That could be a combination of a couple of different factors. One is biomechanics, so the way they're walking. 
Two is what they put on their feet. So the type of shoe gear that they've been in and the activities that they're doing as well. So, okay. So it's not all because we wore high heels. No, no. And that's a common thing. And that's what I get in my office too. It's like, Dr. P, I didn't wear high heels. I didn't wear stilettos. Why am I still getting bunions? And this is when I go into the explanation about the biomechanics of their feet. Right. And what is the treatment for them? So that is a huge topic, but I usually break it into two different areas, conservative and surgical treatment. So first off with bunions, as you mentioned, you kind of look down and you say, what is that? What is this bone that is sticking out? And sometimes it appears to happen overnight, but that doesn't usually, it isn't usually the case. Usually it develops gradually over time, but once you start to see or feel the physical issues that it causes, is that's when you walk into your primary care doctor's office or your podiatrist's office. At that point, I introduce patients to several different treatments. One is shoe gear. I usually start with that. We talk about their foot type and we talk about the width of their shoes, the activities that they do. Then we move on to custom inserts that we could do, or even over-the-counter ones, depending on the type of bunion they have and where their pain is. Other options could be injections. That's more for pain relief. Sometimes you have a combination of bursitis, or as you mentioned, your sesamoid bone could be acting up. So an injection could help with that. Then moving on to things like bunion shields, toe spacers, all of those gadgets that you see online some are helpful and some are not. And that's where I come in to kind of guide the patient because I'm sure you've seen those ads online, <laughs> wear this thing and your bunion will be gone overnight. The right. most important thing to remember is a bunion is a bone issue. So your bone has shifted out of place. So it doesn't matter if you keep pulling your toe over and, and leave it there. Because the bone has moved over, we are more managing the symptoms and managing the, the pain instead of actually correcting the bunion. So that's something that it's hard to explain to patients because obviously you want it gone, right? You don't want to look down and look at it. And that's when we move over to surgery, right? So there's different types of surgeries. There's been a lot of advancement in surgery in the last couple of years. It's nothing new, but it's become really more marketed to the patient. So there's options such as a minimally invasive bunionectomy, something called the lapoplasty, and our traditional bunion correction. And this all involves cutting and moving the bone over and fixating it with screws or plates or you know, different type of uh, construction to keep that bone in place. So it seems that surgery is the only option that you can do to prevent the bunion from getting worse because when you do the conservative treatment, it gradually gets worse, right? The degeneration continues. And so over time, it's still going to get worse. Yes, it can. However, um, I have seen many patients in my office that come in initially with pain and it's bothering them, but then we get them into the right shoes and inserts and they try other things and then the pain stops. So the bunion itself doesn't go away. But what I try to emphasize to my patients is just like you mentioned, if your feet hurt, it affects the quality of your life. So I say with bunions, if your feet hurt in and out of shoes, if it's affecting the quality of your life and stopping you from doing the things that you want to do, for example, stay active or walk or play tennis, 
then you know you're ready for surgery. And can you ever get back to having pretty feet again after having bunions? Absolutely, yes. And everybody's, you know, version of pretty is different. Um, so I always talk about surgical scars and things like that. So sometimes you do trade one thing for another. So it's really important to ask all your questions because if scarring is something that's really important to you, it's important to discuss with your podiatrist. And then there are other things that we can do, like the minimally invasive bunionectomy or even things like silicone sheeting after surgery and things like that to prevent that scar formation. But I think you can get back to pretty feet. And the minimally invasive surgery, how long does it take to recover from? So these are the, the pluses of minimally invasive surgery. And um, some of the, they're not necessarily newer techniques, but they have been marketed as newer because the fixation or what we put into the bone and the way we do it has advanced over time. And this does allow you to get back on your feet a lot sooner than the traditional bunion. And how soon would that be? Uh, some people are walking in, in two weeks. Um, some surgeons walk their patients right after surgery. So that's very surgeon dependent. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, depends on their, frankly, their track record and how well their patients have done. Okay. And you mentioned children earlier. I'm just curious to know what you do for children. Do you just put inserts and change them over time as they grow? Yeah. So that is, again, dependent on pain and issues like that. But usually um, helping them with their shoe gear and custom inserts for children with bunions I found really do help because they likely have some sort of biomechanical issue going on. So there's something called hypermobility. So that means that their joints are actually moving a little too much. So the orthotics kind of help control that and slow down the progression or how quickly the bunions progress. Now, I've actually operated on children. You know, we wait until their growth plates close. Not always, though. And that is a very patient-specific decision. But yeah. if children can't hike or if they can't go for play with their friends, you got to look at it as a case-by-case -case situation. Right. Let's talk about toenail fungus, because that's also a very, very common condition. And probably related to trauma to the toes mostly. So you see it mostly in athletes, I would think. But what are the best treatments for onychomycosis as it's called? Yes, so you're exactly right. A lot of these conditions have predisposing or trauma on top of the fungus. So first we have to figure out, is it fungus or not, right? When we get to that point, there are treatments such as topicals. So I'm sure you've seen things like over the counter, but there are prescription topicals. There's actually nail lasers that target the fungus and also mm -hmm. pills by mouth that also target the fungus as well. And so there are specific patient kind of qualifications that are needed for each one. So, you know, we don't typically use the, the pill if anyone has any liver issues or anything like that. So it's really important to discuss with your doctor which treatment would work. Now, one caveat is there is no 100% cure for fungus. So what I tell my patients is if someone comes into my office with a broken bone, I'm fairly confident that we could fix it, right? One way or another, most patients get better. Now with fungus, it is a whole mixed bag. What type of fungus it is? How long have they had it? 
Studies show that if you come into the office within one year of being diagnosed with fungus or noticing something, you have a much better chance of getting rid of it than waiting. I'm sure you've seen patients that have had it for 20, 30 years, but suddenly it bothers them. So I always encourage patients to come in as soon as they see any signs of discoloration, thickening, or pain. Yeah, I've been somewhat unimpressed with the treatment of uh, toenail fungus. I see many patients that use medications, it seems to me, for years, and it doesn't really get that much better. And for the nail to be completely normal looking, I don't see that too often. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes. And um, the other thing is, is sometimes people reinfect themselves with the fungus. So when I, when patients come to see me, I start them on a whole plan. So it's not just the treatment of the, the toenails. It is the treatment of the shoes, the socks, the bathtub, everything. Because sometimes I've noticed where it starts to get better and then gets worse again. But it may be because a patient has picked up, you know, worn their shoes from last winter and put their feet back into it. Fungus is very hard to kill. It is. Now, plantar fasciitis is one of those pain in the feet kind of conditions that also seem to come from nowhere. Patients will say that they were fine and then all of a sudden the feet hurt. Maybe it hurts when they get out of bed or if they have to sit down for a while and then try to stand up, the feet hurt, but then it gradually gets worse. How do you differentiate the pain from a bone spur and plantar fasciitis? And is the treatment essentially the same? Yep, great question. So people come in sometimes because they say they have a heel spur or a bone spur. There's two different types of bone spurs. So one is at the back of the heel, and then one is at the bottom. The back of the heel, I can bring out my trusty little foot. I knew you were going to bring that foot. (laughs) So the back of the heel, patients really feel that when they it rubs in their shoes. And if they wear certain shoe gear or their Achilles tendon gets inflamed, the issue there is the bone spur. But when you have a bone spur on the bottom of their heel, that isn't necessarily the cause of their pain. The plantar fascia is a muscle that kind of inserts on the bottom. So someone can have plantar fasciitis and not have a heel spur. So the heel spur itself is not the problem. And so essentially we treat it the same. So if people come in saying they have heel spur pain, I first differentiate where the pain is. And then we go through why the heel spur is actually not the issue. Because sometimes we take an x-ray and we see a huge heel spur on the bottom and the patient has never had heel pain or plantar fasciitis before. So what would be the treatment for plantar fasciitis? So with plantar fasciitis, there are a million different things to do. And consistency is the most important thing. So I've been pregnant three times and each time I have developed plantar fasciitis. And I think for me, it might be the hormones combined with the weight gain and um, carrying other children around when I'm pregnant. So there's a couple of things that are really important. One thing is these shoes at home. There is a lot of controversy on should you go barefoot or not barefoot. If you have an issue like plantar fasciitis, it's really important to get some sturdy home shoes. These are Hoka recovery sandals. See how they don't bend and they have a really nice arch. I cannot walk without these. So that is step number one. So I tell patients to slip right into those after they get out of bed. Then there are exercises. There is um, something called a night splint that you can try, icing shoe gear, custom orthotics, 
injections, uh, physical mm. therapy, and even newer therapy, like regenerative therapies, um, such as shockwave therapy and something called PRP. So there is a whole bunch of things that you could do. And the stretching of the calf muscles before and after bed, does that help? It is crucial, I would say. First thing in the morning and then before you go to bed, stretching just helps. And I tell people that have had plantar fasciitis before to just keep doing those exercises because I feel like all of us are really tight in our calves and glutes and hamstrings. And that really does, that, that tightness translates into the feet. Right. And once you do start treating the plantar fasciitis, how long does it usually take? Well, obviously it depends on the modality that you use, but if it's a relatively mild case and they're doing the stretches and the soap, anti-inflammatories, how long before they can start to feel better? So just like toenail fungus, right? The sooner you feel it, you come in, then you will get better faster. So there's some people that come to see me after one visit and they're significantly improved. But I tell patients, the longer you've had it, the longer it takes to get rid of it. So if you wait six months or a year before you come in, I tell people it takes at least that amount of time to get rid of it. Because if you injure another part of your body, you know, you're not walking on your hands, you're not walking on your elbows, but we walk on our feet every day. So although it still hurts, you still have to do your daily things, right? If that is, you know, standing, cooking, working, driving. So the feet never really get a rest. So it does take longer to get rid of it. And let's talk about diabetic neuropathy, um, which is a very complex problem. Um, but obviously, if diabetics don't take care of their feet, they will end up with podiatric problems one yes. way or the other, whether yes. it's neurological or physical or vascular. So is there anything new that can be done for diabetic feet so besides yes. coming in twice a year? Yeah, yeah. So the foot checks are always important because, you know, sometimes as podiatrists, we notice that, oh, wait a second, they can't feel their toes. And then we ask them, have you had a physical or have you gotten your blood sugar checked? And then it turns out that they may have diabetes or another form of neuropathy. So last month was Diabetes Awareness Month, so the month of November. So the American Pediatric Medical Association actually concentrated on diabetic peripheral neuropathy just because it is such a devastating part of diabetes. And if we don't manage that, it can lead, just like you said, to ulcers or even amputation. The podiatrist is a good person to help as part of the team to help with peripheral neuropathy, as well as the primary care doctor, the neurologist, and we can help guide you. So newer treatments are, one is spinal cord stimulators, and that we do in conjunction with pain management to help with peripheral neuropathy. Two, what I tend to prescribe in my office are topical compounding creams to help with the pain. Because as you know, sometimes the peripheral neuropathy is painful. So one symptom could be numbness, whereas another person could have pain and that stops them from sleeping at night and can really affect quality of life. So there's compounding creams. Nerve foods is also a big one. So sometimes when patients notice the beginning signs of peripheral neuropathy, that numbness, that tingling, sometimes starting them on a supplement, which includes things like B vitamins. So that working with them in conjunction with their primary care doctor could be a first line treatment to peripheral neuropathy, along with 
the medications that you prescribe or the neurologist would prescribe, such as Lyrica or Gabapentin. Let's talk about shoes and which ones might be the best. Tennis shoes, running shoes are often put in the same basket. People just call them sneakers, but they are designed differently according to the forms of movement. And I did read your article on that. Thanks. Why is it important to select the right tennis shoe? Yes, very important. And I just recently spoke to Prevention Magazine about this. They had asked me a lot of questions about what are the best tennis shoes and why you should wear a tennis shoe. So remember, shoes are constructed differently. So a regular running shoe or walking shoe, there's even a difference between those two because the movements of walking and running are different. So with running, the shoe propels you forward. They're usually lighter because, you know, patients don't want to be weighed down by the weight of the shoe. With activities like tennis and pickleball, we see a lot of injuries from people going side to side. So that side to side movement and that quick change of movement can result in things like stress fractures and ankle sprains. So the tennis shoe is actually made differently to give you stability on the outsides of the shoe, also adds more cushioning in the middle of the shoe, and wearing the right shoe for whatever activity you are doing can reduce the chance of injury. So although people will say, well, I'm wearing tennis today, it's not, mm -hmm. you're not wearing a tennis actually. <laughs> you're wearing yeah. likely a fashion sneaker, as I put it. <laughs> um, pickleball seems to be all the rage with women as they get older right now. I'm oh, not absolutely. sure why. And Zumba. And so I think that these are causing a lot of um, traumatic injuries of the ankle as women are getting older. So that's a good piece of advice that you give them, that they must be careful about what kinds of shoes they wear. I remember the first time I went to a Zumba class, people were like all oh, this way and then that way. And I was barely able to keep up with what was going on. But there were some people wearing some very odd looking shoes. Oh, yeah. And they said, oh, these are Zumba shoes. And I thought, why do you have to have special shoes just to dance around? Right. But clearly, it's also age dependent. As you get older, you do need to be more specific about what you put on your feet for different activities. Because, you know, we don't bounce back. We're right. not as flexible and elastic as people when they're younger. Now, do you really have to wear shower shoes in the locker room and the gym? I would say absolutely, because we talked about <laughs> nail fungus, right? And then there's foot fungus and, and warts, two of those things that you can pick up in a locker room or a shower. And yes, and I say you can even get, you know, one of these like recovery sandals like I have and throw them in your gym bag and put them on when you're showering and walking around the locker room. The biggest thing is make sure that you also like Lysol spray them or wash them afterwards as well. Don't stick them like right back into your bag again because other things can, can grow on it. Mm. But that is one of the most common areas that people pick these things up. So I would say it's worth the investment shower shoes. Mm. Now are flip-flops ever good for the feet? Okay, so that is a big one. So there's different types of flip-flops. So if you think about your traditional flip floppy, right? They have the thong design that goes in between your toes. When you wear a shoe like that, your foot actually has to work much harder to keep your the, the shoe on. And keep that can result in things like hammer toes, plantar fasciitis, 
people walk long distances in these flip-flops. It's not like you're just throwing them on for two minutes. In the summer, people are wearing them a lot. So I say sandals are fine, but you need to find one with a sturdy construction, like what I showed you with my recovery sandal. It should not fold in half. And there are quite a few brands out there that have them. Some of my favorites are Birkenstock, Bionics, and there's something called Fit Flops. So if they pass my shoe test, as all my patients know, Dr. P's shoe test, you shouldn't be able to, you know, wring it or <laughs> fold it in half. Then Fit Flip Flops are fine. But if you think of the traditional one, I would say a big hard pass. Yes, I agree. And what are the best travel shoes? So travel shoes is when you got to think about packing, right? You don't want this big honking sneaker with you um, taking up a lot of space in your bag. So when it comes to sneakers for travel, I say, you know, something lightweight with a lot of cushion. So my favorite shoes for travel are actually Hoka's. They have cushion, but they're also lightweight. So you can maybe pack two pairs or pack that along with your dress shoes and they're not going to take up too much space. How do you spell that? H-O-K-A. Okay. Yes. And um, they have made the, the list of travel shoes and um, just great everyday cushioned shoe gear. So this is not a commercial, but last month a patient of mine spent $2,500 at the Good Feet store. And she says it helped her back enormously. And all they did was evaluate her feet and decide what the right inserts would be. And obviously they sold them to her. I was amazed at the cost, so was she, but she did say that it was well worth it. She says her back pain has gone and she's had back pain for years. And so her biggest thing was, I wish I'd done this sooner. So when do you need custom inserts and why do they cost so much? So first of all, there is no need for anyone to spend $2,500 on custom inserts. And so this is where, you know, podiatry versus the good feet store <laughs> come into play. So a custom insert is when you are evaluated by a, a doctor and they make a prescription to fit your feet. So there is a big difference between that. And, and there's other people that, you know, will say that the insert is custom and it's not. It could be something called heat molded. So it could be just warmed up and pushed up to your foot. But that does not necessarily mean that it's custom. So I'm glad that it worked out for your patient. But I've actually had a, a, a different perspective here where they say, well, why didn't I come to your office first before I spent $2,500? So the custom orthotics that I do in my office or a lot of other podiatrists do are different and they do not cost $2,500. And I say that orthotics aren't meant to fix every problem in your body and not everybody needs them either. So it's not that orthotics are going to, you know, even make your feet feel better for certain conditions, but for other conditions, it really does help. And when people say that it helps either their knee pain or their back pain, it could be that it helps with their alignment. Yeah, and I'm we look at that from a foot perspective. So there's different types of feet. So one is pronation where people turn in, supination where people turn out and something called neutral, when feet are straight up and down. It's really important to know what type of foot type you have when you go shopping for shoes or over-the-counter inserts or get custom inserts. 
So I have seen in my office where sometimes us as podiatrists looking at the alignment can translate into the upper kinetic chain feeling better, like their back or their knees. But I always tell patients that that is not our primary goal as podiatrists. Our primary goal is to help with the feet. But guess what? The feet are connected to the rest of the body. And so oh. there is plenty of time. And I remember there is this, you know, college Michigan basketball player. And she had had back pain for so long. And she had been everywhere. And she was also having foot pain. So from my point of view, I did orthotics for her, for her feet. But she did come back to tell me, she's like, oh, my goodness, Dr. B, like, I can play without pain. And I said, that's a great bonus feature to these orthotics. So let's talk about the fancy stuff. PRP is all the rage everywhere. Every few months, I hear about another application. People use it for cosmetics. They use it for their knees. A patient told me last week someone wanted to make eye drops out of her blood for dry eye. That was a new one for me. So I guess we should first explain to our listeners what this Dracula treatment is all about and then explain how it helps in podiatry. So PRP or platelet-rich plasma is when we take your own blood and we spin it in something called a centrifuge and it divides into an almost regenerative therapy that we inject back into you. And so from a podiatry point of view, we use it for a lot of different things, such as inflammation, tendon tears, tendonitis. Um, we even can put it in intraoperatively to help with uh, things called non-unions and help bone heal as well. The problem is a lot of these therapies are not covered by insurance. So a whole section a called therapy <laughs> where there are a bunch of different things are actually fee-for-service. So it's difficult sometimes to suggest it to the patient right at the beginning, even if I have seen significant improvement. So I usually bring it in kind of right before we're discussing surgery. So I say, hey, you know, your tendon's torn and we could go to the OR or we could try this. And in some cases it works, and in some cases it doesn't. I have had good success with tendon tears in certain areas, um, and there is literature to support it, but there is not enough literature with PRP with some of these newer therapies or applications. So the research is a little bit behind. So I'm hoping with there is more research that it could be an insurance covered modality. That would be nice. Without insurance, how much would someone be looking at paying? So it depends on, um, honestly, the area that you live in and the amount of people that are doing the therapies, but usually it ranges between $500 to $1,000 per treatment. And sometimes right. patients need one treatment, patients sometimes need two treatments, and it also depends on what area you're treating. So I'm sure the cost is different in the feet or the ankles versus, you know, a lot of my patients use it for labrum tears or, you know, other larger areas. Yeah. In the back, I think it can run about 2,500. Right. Exactly. So. Or people get it for arthritis in the knees. Yep. And what can you tell us about the role of shockwave therapy in lower extremity sports medicine? So I remember hearing about it first in terms of cardiovascular disease. There was this thing that they said it would open up the arteries in the heart. And they showed a, a video of a guy being like shaken like a, like a cocktail. Right. But it's interesting to me that you're now using it in 
lower extremities. Absolutely. So how does that work? Um, I'm really excited. That's what my future was this past month. I've lectured a lot on regenerative therapies in general. Um, shockwave therapy or EPAT, there's different modalities. Um, it's a machine that we use and it increases inflammation and increases your body's response to either the tendonitis or the tear or whatever we are treating. Recently, I talked about it in sports medicine. So that's more of an acute example where people will use it for sprains. They'll use it for Achilles tendonitis or plantar fasciitis. Um, usually it is reserved for chronic issues. So it's almost like, you know, a patient has had plantar fasciitis for years and your body just kind of turns off trying to heal it. So I've noticed for the few times that I've gone in to do surgery for plantar fasciitis, that when I go in, the fascia itself is very thick. So it's almost like they develop scar tissue in that area. So it gets to a point where it doesn't matter how many times you stretch, that muscle is just not going to stretch out anymore. So there are studies that show that shockwave therapy actually reduces the thickness of the plantar fascia itself. So they're seeing that there's long-term improvement. So if the thickness of the plantar fascia is actually thinner, the muscle becomes more malleable, decreased inflammation, and they're seeing the plane release um, last longer. And I've actually seen that in my office as well. Um, we offer it, um, and I've used it for Achilles tendonitis with uh, plantar fasciitis, um, something called perineal tendonitis on the tendons on the outside of the ankle. The exciting thing about this therapy is you don't need any downtime. So it's weekly mm. treatments. So I do usually three to start, but sometimes, you know, if you do PRP in the foot and ankle, I have to put the patient in a boot, but with shockwave therapy, you can actually just go on with your day. And so patients find it much less restricting and the maximal benefits for shockwave therapy are seen up to eight weeks after treatment. So the big thing that you have to remember is no anti-inflammatories and no ice after treatment because we want your body's natural response. Exactly. Inflammation. What's interesting is I had a patient the other day come and ask me for shockwave therapy. And that, that was a first actually. So I said, Hey, like, where did you hear about this? Um, and it wasn't, you know, on a commercial in the United States, it's being used in Europe a lot. And so they mm -hmm. said that their family members in Europe, you know, they got the shockwave therapy. So like, why can't they get it here? In, in Europe, they do use it a lot. So that's also interesting how medicine varies sometimes around the world. And it's about 30 minutes each session? It depends on how many areas you're treating. So actually the average treatment time for say just one foot and the plantar fascia is about 15 minutes. And why would someone need fat pad injections? So that's a good question, actually. And I have seen it a lot in the podiatry community and the orthopedic community, and actually even the wound care community, where you can inject fat into the patient's fat pad to help prevent things like ulcerations or pain. As our feet get older, what happens is you lose the fat on the bottom of the foot. And so what happens is, is patients say, well, my feet hurt. It's actually because you're walking on the bones, on these bones on the bottom of the foot itself. So adding the fat pad in can cushion the area that hurts. Now, the issue with fat pad injections is it's not just a one and done. 
So it's, it's, you got to keep up with it. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And I know there are some doctors in New York um, that, not just New York, but I'm sure around the United States that will um, do pillow injections to keep your feet more comfortable in heels. So I've seen these um, fat pad injections used in many different ways. Now, where does the fat come from that you inject? So it's not your own fat. It's it's taken from elsewhere. Um, and it really depends on the, the type of fat that you're using and the uh, company you're using, where the fat can come from. But it is actual fat? It is actual As fat. in animal fat? Animal fat, yes. Okay. But there's no concerns about uh, an allergic reaction to it? Not that, that I have seen. Okay. And how often do you have to get these injections? So that varies, but I would say six months to a year. Okay. So like twice a year, maybe? Twice a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Likely. Okay. Depending okay. on why and where. And you feel like you're walking on a cushion. Yeah, exactly. So the, literally people call it like pillow injections. So <laughs> you can make your shoes more comfortable and, uh, but what I really find that it helps is, especially in these diabetic patients that have had these ulcers because there's yeah. pressure in the area. Atrophy. Exactly. And so that that is life-changing, right? Because these areas, because of the pressure, they actually open up. Okay. Well, Priya, it's been wonderful talking with you. Um, as always, nice to see you back in action after the recent baby. And I hope you'll come back again and talk some more to us about feet and the importance of foot health, obviously. Were there any special things you wanted to advise people about their feet besides cutting their toenails? Right. So my biggest thing that I like to end off with or always make sure that I say is foot pain is not normal. And so if your feet hurt, just like you mentioned, right, it affects the quality of your life. So please come and see your podiatrist. We can help you. Mention it to your primary care doctor. They can guide you. So I could go on and on about a million different foot issues, and I would love to discuss more with you. But I really appreciate you bringing um, the importance of foot care and foot health to your podcast. And podiatrists can take care of ankle sprains as well, right? Absolutely. So I our think there's a misunderstanding about ankle sprains because I tell someone you need to go see your podiatrist and they're like, why don't I have to see the orthopedist? Right. So maybe you could put a plug in there. Absolutely. And so your podiatrist is able to deal with any foot and ankle issue that you have. And that ranges from ankle fractures, ankle sprains, Achilles tendon tears. Um, we deal, especially me, with athletes, children. I mean, the youngest child I've seen is three months in my office. And there are a bunch of different things that we can treat. And it's not just your toes or your toenails. Um, it Podiatry covers the entire foot and ankle. Okie dokie. On that happy note, it was nice talking with you, Priya, and thank you so much for coming in. And we look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. Again, thank you for having me. It was a blast. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you for joining me once again for my podcast, Wellness and Wisdom. Today, we talked with the president-elect of the Maryland Podiatric Medical Association, 
board and spokesperson for the American Pediatric Association. Dr. Priya Parthasathy, who is a board certified podiatrist working in Maryland. You heard her say, it is not normal to have pain in your feet. So taking care of your feet is critical to your quality of life as you age. There are lots of exciting treatments in the field of feet, but everything works best if you start it early. And when you buy shoes, think about the words of wisdom that Dr. Priya gave you so you can prevent issues later on. So thank you for joining me once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and I will see you on the next one. Please push like and we'll catch up later. Bye-bye for now.